0: Hello and welcome to the Brand Explorer podcast. I'm your host, Dirk Belling, coming to you from Munich. These interviews explore the trails and passes people have taken to build successful brands in the cyclic community. Listen to their lessons from their own personal experience. Enjoy the ride. Hello and Thank you for coming back to Tom Ritchie's Special Anniversary Story Part 2. This second part will give you more details on why Tom changed from racing road bikes to adventure riding, what crazy rides he and his friends got into, and what their bikes looked like in these days. Of course, we have to talk about gravel riding today and why it has taken the industry so long to make it happen. And how Tom and his wife Martha still end up in adventures today on their tandem. Enjoy the ride. And so, but back to the, the one thing you said that like, you know you did all these brutal climbs. I mean, they, I know the Santa Cruz Mountains there, even though so they're soft, they're not so rocky, but they're they're steep. And like there was no 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 YouTube and Google, uh, there were no no ten fifty two cassettes at that time. So what what kind of gearing did you guys or like what kind of equipment did you have? You were you doing these epic? It was all it was all
1: traditional bikes. Okay, and so can you define what what's traditional? I mean, many people traditional bike traditional bike in the seventies was you know um, I was one of the only one myself and Peter Johnson and Albert Eisentrout locally that was building any frames, so there was there was a few custom made bikes built by some locals, but for the most part, it was you know mozzie Cinelli, DeRosa, Rosa Auggie, English bikes like uh, Bob Jackson, Ron Cooper. Uh, Jack uh, Taylor. There was, there was. pretty much um, the standard steel bikes that you know transition. I would say more on the more into the Italian side in the eighties, where you would see the Geoces and you would see some new, you know, Calagos. I and mean, wasn't uh, wasn't a brand in in the beginning in the seventies. I forget when Calago came over, but Calago. And and Geos and some of the uh, some of the Italian companies that gained a foothold into the United States market really didn't happen until the '80s. So it was primarily the forebearers of those brands that were uh, the bikes. And and what what you have to realize is that you know um, standard clearance of those bikes was different than standard clearance that happened. in the aerodynamic uh, period of, of uh, the sport and a bike needed uh, a bike needed to fit fenders and a bike needed to have enough clearance wherein a spoke broke um, to be able to finish the ride. And those are the, those were the conditions of any bike. Every bike had uh, enough clearance practically to fit a Del Mondo or Perro Bay, which was a 28 C so up. Um, everyone rode tubulars and it was a matter of what, what your spoke count was and what size tires you had on it. And for Yope's rides, we all, for the most part chose, um, we had two sets of wheels, one for training, one for racing. Most people did. And one set of wheels was uh was for yokes rides, the other set of wheels was for racing <laughs> and so it was twenty
0: eight tires okay 28 white and, yeah. and what kind of gearing is a traditional
1: uh basically there was no no difference. everyone used racing gears okay, and we were just we were just in really good sh- shape and we were we were capable of, of of doing things and I can imagine the smallest. The smallest gear set can't be made was a 42. Originally, when I started racing, it was a 44. Right. So the 44, 52, then it became, then camp came out with a 42, 52. And as a junior, I was gear restricted to 83 inches. So the biggest gear that I could even have on my bike at the time was, a. I think it was a 45, 13. And so, um... It didn't. I mean, so my rear cassette was typically a 1321 and I had a 4245 up front. I might've been a 46. I forget what the gear ratio pounded out to be, but, um, it was, uh, it was traditional gearing based on what we were racing and, and going back to something I said earlier, no one had two bikes, um, No one had new bikes. Everything was uh, was for the most part a a recycling of of someone's previous bike and an assembly of of components that were what you could afford at the time and a newer assembly of components based on you know things that wore out and things that had come down or come along. I remember. A big uh, excitement when Campanello developed their first side pull brake, and I think it was about ninety four or seventy four something in that time period. Previous to that, it was center pull brakes uh, that everyone had on their bikes, and um, and then, of course, you know uh, the evolution of other things that came along that were much much more subtle than what we think about in terms of technology. technology. Everything was handed down by the gods of Europe. So um, if the gods of Europe did, didn't want to develop a new derailleur or an extra gear or a seven-speed system, then there was no seven-speed systems. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and the gods of Europe thought that six was enough. <laughs> Did and, you
0: meet, did you meet guess, any
1: of those gods then not not until the mountain bike which is a complete is a completely uh kind of um a a, a game changing um a game changer in terms of the gods right. of the cycling world and and how it i mean it's it's a it's a it's worth <laughs> it's worth at least mu- as much um Time as we've spent so far in this conversation because it uh it was really um, quite a, a a dynamic shift that happened as a result of the mountain bike so before we go to the to the the, the gods and
0: mountain bikes so like so you were racing you were doing school you, you but you said you started fixing bikes for others is that when you started making money with with first time with bikes or uh
1: no actually. Uh, I, I, my dad taught me how to repair tubular tires when I was eleven. Oh, when you were eleven, and and, and in fifth grade, um, I, uh, I said, "Dad, you know, who, I, I was kind of like um, replacing uh, a tube and a broken frame. No one was repla- No one was repairing tubulars." I mean, there were some people. Yopes was repairing tubulars that I found out. Um, I mean, they were expensive. Everyone used them. That that was a serious cyclist. And when you got on a flat, most people didn't know how to repair them. And my dad reverse engineered, figured out how to repair them. And the bike shop down the road um, had a had a shiny new Raleigh Super Corsa in the window. And I went to the owner of the bike shop and I said, "Look." I know how to repair tubulars, test me out. um, And if I'm good enough, I'll repair your tubulars for that shiny new bike in the window. And uh, that was uh, the first way that I learned how to make money. And then I learned how to build, my dad taught me how to build wheels. And so it was a matter of, of, of a couple of years before building a first frame that I was making money and realizing it was a lot, it was a lot easier to make money by doing things that no one, no one was doing, uh, than it was mowing a lawn or babysitting or other other typical things that a kid would do. Did you ever try some of those typical typical things? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I did. Yeah. Wow. And I was, I was happy to not have to be a paper boy or, or a lawnmower anymore. <laughs>
0: wow. Hey, one, one thing I just forgot to ask, but I want to go back. So when you did those crazy yop strides, did you also did, did overnighters or like stay out there in the, in the, in the wilderness and did uh,
1: not intentionally, not intentionally. <laughs> um, <laughs> things got close. Things got close a couple of times. Um, but we would do an annual Sierra ride, which was a was a, a an epic thing. It was um, uh, it was going from one side of the area, Sierra's to the other side um, one day, spending spending the night on the other side of the Sierra's and coming back. And it coincided mm-hmm. with Yokes finding out when they were plowing the passes. OK, so okay. his deal, his deal was to find out where the plows were, where the snow plows were. And and before traffic was opened up to go and um I'll send you a picture uh, of that. But um it ended up sometimes pretty sketchy. I can imagine <laughs> his inf- his information was good, but it was never perfect. And so <laughs> so we'd end up. In in snowfields and all kinds of things, you know, between uh, opening up passes and getting to the other side, and days got long. Sometimes, yeah, it uh, it was it was epic. It was always epic. Wow. Riding riding with Yopes, the force I should call him from now on. The force who rides was always epic.
0: Great. So. You, you, you've mentioned quite a few times that you were on gravel roads, and that you know there were you were off off the roads in the woods, and so um, then. Basically, well, no, there were gravel.
1: Yeah, I, you, yeah, no. I mean, the tremendous amount of roads, what we called fire roads, were were and uh, and places were gravel and uh, in a classic sense, yeah.
0: So you know, now jumping, you know, could you have imagined? that that you know 50 years later like 40 years later you know after all that cycling went through of road cycling and mountain biking and full suspension and, and e-bike that gravel oh. gravel now oh. becomes the new new pocket in in cycling what are your uh, thoughts there
1: why did it take so know, long you know you know it it, it um gravel the idea, the concept of gravel, of course, is nothing new. It's been around since the turn of the century, and it was, you know, it was somewhat um, the. It was the only way before pavement, and then pavement happened, and gravel, uh, and the idea of gravel riding was was not the same with pavement. So all these things happened as a result of of the influence of pavement on the bike and, you know, thinner and thinner tires and, and, uh, and diameters and, you know, pavement, you didn't need as big a diameter because you're, you know, the potholes and other things that were part of gravel riding, which was a common thing. So, you know, technology kind of, um, Uh, supported, of course, the first, the first bikes that were gravel design bikes. Technology then advanced to the road bike, classic road bike with, um, with a period of time where the classic road bike having more and more gears and then, um, and then the aerodynamics and other things came in. But in the, in the middle of that, was the mountain bike and the mountain bike brought all this kind of uh you know hybrid of morphing the best of road bike kind of technology and the and the best of of uh of historical um historical designs whether it be uniqueness of some of the brakes that happened back then you know the v-brake is not a new brake v-brake is something that was around turn of the century or the 20s i forget where i saw a picture of it the suspension also back in the day of the uh, of the uh, original kind of ballooner bikes and other things so there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff that was previously invented that got that got um amalgam amalgamated into the whole technology that of the mountain bike. And then, you know, wheel diameters, other things kind of, um, I mean, people don't realize, but the gods that were designing parts were so powerful that if they didn't want to give you a different diameter rim, or a different tire to use, you didn't get it. (laughs) And what happened in the mountain bike years is that a few of us decided to push over the apple cart and, and take, you know, tear down the God statues and decide we weren't going to wait for the gods to make uh, these parts. We were going to do it ourselves. Right. So you're speaking about your first uh, two by Whatever it is, you know, uh, you know, uh, handlebar stem, seat post, bottom brackets—you name it. Mainly the wheels, you know, the rims, the tires, everything that goes along with that. If they weren't going to make it, we we figured out how to have it made, and and that changed the whole world. And it turned, you know, basically uh, 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 the. The, the 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 you know the the rigidity of you, if we don't do this you don't need it mindset amongst the key players in the bike industry upside down and uh, and then so choice became mm-hmm. became cultural it didn't and, it, and I'm not talking only about cycling. We have lived in the land of choice ever since the 80s, 70s, I would say, 70s or 80s. And going back to think it, do it, it, you, it, the, 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 you know, the, the doors or the gates got blown open and a bunch of people, a bunch of peasants like Tommy Ritchie <laughs> and others walked through and said, we ain't going to take this any longer, and we're going to do it our way. And at the time, I was young, and, and I, could, I could offer up my services, and, and uh, people would follow. What was, from
0: your view, the first first real Tom Ritchie product that you, you, you built because of the frustration on the gods? You're designed?
1: Well, um, I would say, the you know, building the bike in a different way was a big deal. Okay. So um, the gods decided, the gods said you needed lugs. And I said, I don't need lugs. Okay. So the subtlety of that was huge. So it paved the way for anyone to build any diameter and geometry. Up until then, the gods owned the lugs. And every frame builder said, oh my goodness, I can't build that because I don't have the lugs to build that. So if you wanted a different geometry, if you wanted a different diameter, down tube or top tube or anything, there was, uh, TIG welding hadn't been applied to, to a frame building. So, the idea that you could build without lugs was very, very emancipating and uh and of course, you know then I developed special tubing and designs of tubing in the in the eighties that had to do with a completely different way that people had had uh, had grown up in using um in building methods and so the idea to, 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 to throw off the shackles that were <laughs> that, that everyone had had to you know build with was a big deal. And along with that, making my own stems. So everyone, you know, the gods of stem of the STEM world were were bound by a Chinelli 1A stem. And I looked at that and I go, why would I want if I can build a good steel structure, why would I want a solid aluminum stem that is lousy in just about everything it does? It rotates, it twists, it slips. It, it's this hunk of aluminum at the front of my bike that weighs 12 ounces or 13 ounces, depending upon the length, that I didn't like. And I said, I'm gonna build a steel stem. And it weighed four ounces and it was stiff. And I could sprint on it and I could feel the rigidity difference. And I could feel all these things. And so I was my own guinea pig because I was racing and I wanted to go faster and and I got away with it for the most part. And there were other things I developed, like bottom brackets that had steel bearings and seat posts that were half the weight of. A campy seat post and there were uh, in those first years many many different ex- i built hubs i built i built the anyway i don't so i in, don't need to all this tom like it sounds like you know you were only
0: you said guinea pig but you could see your own best customer right out of frustration so was it what, what was driving you there was it was it the the quality again or the the weight or what What was it, it? was
1: it was yeah, building the fastest, lightest, highest performance bike for a <laughs> for an overconfident and um, you know uh, strong racer uh, in the day that uh, was focused on winning. It was Formula One in the bike world in the '70s, and and no one had a lighter, faster bike than I did.
0: So so, can you for those who, who haven't been watching this, uh, uh, racing in the seventies? What 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 did you race? Where were you? What what does for, Formula One mean in, in in racing bikes in the seventies?
1: Okay, so so there's there's a lot of drill down on that. I don't know where to start. Just, just some examples in... of so
0: like, you what level were you racing? Were you were your world championships and?
1: So there was no such thing as a. There was no American at the world championships until really um, Le Monde. Okay. As far as I know. So. Uh, I believe you
0: that I don't challenge. <laughs> yeah.
1: I'm not sure. hundred percent. There were some people in the track side. So cycling was a kind of a, uh, uh, phew, yeah. Um, you know, the history of cycling in the United States is huge. And so it goes back. If you want to go back to track racing, six-day racing, and stuff, in the um, in the East Coast, you had you had the best in the world back in the turn of the century. But then the wars came, the World Wars came, and everyone kind of doubled down on making you know planes and boats and things like that. And Ford came along with his with his uh, with his Model T, and you had you know, a heyday, all these other things. And so in the pavement on the roads, and other things, there, there was really a different culture in the United States at a certain point of time that cycling really wasn't, uh, I would say, a sport that was that was influenced by the world. And, and then it started to come. It started to come back in the 70s. In the U.S., mainly my neighborhood, the, the Bay Area was at the forefront of that change. Mike Neal, who I raced against, and was very competitive, was the first one that went to Europe and placed fifth against Eddie Merckx in the world. Um, and that was the, I believe that was the end of the 70s. Could have been 70. Could have, Jacques Boyer, who I raced against, right. my, uh, um, went and... Uh, and just left left US cycling and got on a good team in Europe and ended up riding the Tour de France a couple of times and, and did really well. Anyway, there was and Greg Lamond, of course, he was famous. He changed everything. Greg, Greg was really the one that that, um, that changed everything. But all these were my people I raced against, people I, I won against. I won practically every race that I entered as a junior got tired of it started entering senior races got disqualified after winning against the against the the best in the country the olympic team became famous for getting disqualified for (laughs) (laughs) ended up um you know i i was 16 years old my teammates who were just on the on the world's team um, were 17. They were allowed to race. I was pissed off. I entered the senior race. I broke away, won the senior race against Keith Moen, Flip Wall Gary Fisher, all these guys that were seniors, that were on the national team, had just come back from the Olympics. And, and I, <laughs> I was met with. You're disqualified for a month, Richie, <laughs> and it was reason? probably one of what? For what reason were you
0: disqualified?
1: I was too young. Okay. <laughs> anyway, it it kind of was. It kind of became somewhat of a of a of a unique uh, piece of my story that helped in a in the mindset of a 16 year old just kind of go for it. that that uh, chapter
0: of you being 16 must have been like what 200 pages man amazing
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) anyway so so i was on the national team and i raced in the junior world championships and and all but the thing you know comes full circle um when i was turning senior and raced a year as a senior um in 76, I just, I just had, I had no joy. Okay. It was a different, I was in a different place in my life. And I love riding bikes just for love of riding bikes. And I was not, not the same person that I was just a few years previous. And I decided that um, my, my frame building business and and all was going so well that um just uh focusing on big adventure rides like yokes was doing and building frames was what i wanted to do and so that that's when
0: you quit racing and 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 opened that's when i quit
1: quit road racing road racing and of course mountain bike racing was just around the corner and i got back into racing on the mountainside that Paradise Divide stage race, which which you said I think you raced, right? Well, that raced the road the road race, yeah. Not the, not the road. Oh, the road race. Okay, so the Paradise Divide road race, uh, mountain bike stage race in in Crescent Butte, I tied I tied with Gary to win it. So that's so I basically switched my switched my interest. And it was all about adventure riding and mountain bike riding. and so did this adventure riding then also change your your uh,
0: way of of uh, innovating new new parts and pieces for the bikes?
1: Absolutely. Um, you know one of the one of the big influences, of course, with adventure riding, of course, was Yopes, and he was dominant uh, uh, and strong worded person that would, um, that would criticize just about anything from whatever it was in life to anything that broke on a bike. And if, (laughs) if if you develop anything that he didn't think was, was going to last, you know, or think was designed with the right engineering soundness, um, you were, you know, you better have your reasons to defend it. And uh, it better work because um, he was gonna not wait around if it broke in the middle of nowhere uh, because he was going to keep riding and goodbye. And so there was the fear of God <laughs> from a different in a different sense of being left in the woods uh, with a broken part. So there was a lot of a lot of experimenting I did that I that I you know developed on my own and uh had had yopes's uh overview uh on the weekends and critical breakdown of everything you could imagine from an engineering perspective classic engineering mechanical engineering perspective applied to it and uh and basically i was i was given an education whether i was going to whether i liked it or not he was going to say what he was going to say and i was going to learn something either by breaking it or learning what i did wrong and he um, he was a big influence so it sounds like
0: you, you said you, you broke a lot right and you tried a lot and so like uh, so failure uh, was was a big yeah, part there was of a, your career in right
1: in the in the beginning, um, you know, I think if you're, if you're incentivized by winning races and, and, uh, and doing things that hadn't been, I mean, my bike was pounds lighter than just about everyone else's bike. I mean, literally, a standard racing steel bike was 21 pounds. Mine was 18 pounds on a typical race, in a typical, in a typical race. And whether it was things that I was playing with on the frame, the stem, the seat post, the bottom bracket, the wheels, um, it was all uh, it was all kind of you know an experimental product driven life I was living that right. I was getting scrut I was getting scrutinized every I was getting scrutinized by yokes and I was getting either. Um, you know um, winning winning races, which was usually mostly what was going on, or I was sidelined because something went wrong so where did, where did
0: you find then the motivation? I mean, somebody always tells you, this is not working and this is not working, so you, you had to get a ba- had to go back times over times, but you know where did you find the motivation to to keep going, and not just at one point' like, "Wow, I've had it
1: Well. I think you know most of my motivation was 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 very um, <clears throat> you know very, very carnal in a sense of just wanting to be the best, and having you know having you know standing up on the podium. The first place that was mm-hmm. you know just it was just a very you know kind of normal mindset of a of a of a teenager thinking he could beat someone older than him someone that had a reputation for you know so yeah. there was so anyway in, in but in the, that's racing but you know when you said
0: in adventure right i mean like you know and and uh did this continue, or got it, did it get better at that point? When you did the only the adventure, I stopped racing.
1: Oh, oh! Well, it it transitioned. So, in those coming years, my love of being um, being out in the middle of nowhere and and doing things that were considered to be unusual, which gravel riding and um, and all was you know, adv- gravel adventure riding in the in the middle of the Santa Cruz Mountains or across the Sierras or California has tremendous amount of, of dirt roads. I mean, Northern California, when you go above the Gold Gate, you get into the Sonoma Mendocino forests and other places in California is just phenomenal dirt roads, amazing dirt roads. And, and if you learned... Um, just the routes into the Sierras and the backpacking routes and things that, that um, crossing the Sierras was like. You also just kind of imagine, oh, if I could go from here to here and link this to this, it would be another way to cross the Sierras. And all these kind of ideas that went through my head um, on the adventure side and living in a great place like California. It, it, it you know. And I didn't have people. There was a point in my life where I didn't have people to do it with. Mm -hmm. Um, they were working, they were going to school. Um, I'd always invite somebody, but a lot of times it was me. I just, I had to, you know, so then the incentive wasn't necessarily winning a race on Sunday. It was basically surviving my adventure. And I was old enough and experienced enough at that point in time to not, to plan or to, to re focus my, interests and in surviving myself uh, by not doing stupid things in component design we're not doing things that weren't going to survive my adventures and so this shifting of making very very uh, practical and durable and lightweight at the same time product was going on in my in my lifestyle and it was completely for me and my own selfish interests. It wasn't for a business reason. Huh. Okay. It was just, you know, how to, how to do something, have a thrill of doing it and being able to come back home in one piece. And I did many things alone <laughs> and things that scare me. At this point or scare, scare Martha <laughs> it's still scare Martha that I do alone and this is before the cell phone before any way of communicating before any emergency uh, button that you place like you push like spot
0: <laughs> can you can, can you share one of those scary moments it was a, an adventurous
1: moment. uh man there's uh, there's some there's some uh, there's some Santa Cruz Mountain um stories that have to do with having um uh having things that just changed changed my projectile as far as what I what I would where I would end up and what route I would have to take because of this and and, and all and um things that you get yourself into when you're when you're looking at your watch and saying, "Dang, I, I planned this to take. Um, I planned. I planned to be done with this ride. Get back home by six, and now I'm going to get back home by nine, in the dark." And there's a, there's there's a, a number of stories like that that don't have to do necessarily with broken parts, but just but just you know being on an adventure that it's a new it's something new. And you don't, you don't know how long it's going to take, and you think it's going to take, and you realize what the winter did, and all the tree crossings and other things. I mean, I run into this now. So Like what? Like what? <clears throat> well, it's the old, en- so, so Martha and I take Martha, <clears throat> I mean, we used to ride the old entrance to Yosemite Park through the Tuolumne Grove and up, <clears throat> up the old crane, up the old road uh, to crane flat. And, um, I hadn't been on it for, for a number of years. And I, I'd, I'd say, I told Martha, this is an amazing ride. This is like, you know, it's going back into the, into the, into the recesses of Yoke's rides and, and, and all, and, and you're going to love it. And we get into it. And all of a sudden the roads caved in and, you know, you're already. Uh, you a tree a tree falls across the road, and you realize what happened here. It's like, why aren't they maintaining this road? And then you get up another mile, and you're, you've already crossed like five trees, and you're thinking, "Am I the halfway point?" And it gets worse, and it gets worse, and it gets worse, and and it's like they abandoned the old entrance road, and it's this wonderful route into the into. Uh, into the back into the back way entrance of Yosemite. And, <clears throat> you know, what she thought was going to be a two-hour, three-hour ride turns out to be a, a six-hour ride. And that's just, you know, what you can do on a bike. <clears throat> we were on a tandem, and it, <laughs> it meant, you know, me picking up the tandem and lifting it over things, over and, it. over and over and over again, and telling Martha oh it will get better it'll get better <laughs> and try you know managing her fear factor and well being and you know anyway it's that kind of stuff
0: so it never stopped huh
1: <laughs> anyway she's stopped. she's always she's always got a good attitude and i'm wonderful i'm wonderfully blessed to have her as my tandem partner right. so
0: you know to 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 come into the future right i mean like so it sounds like what you've been doing uh, as a young ambitious kid you're still doing in your way today exploring adventures improving do you still do you still uh, have ideas to improve
1: things to make things better or oh absolutely absolutely yeah i mean <clears throat> as i said previously we live in the, in the land of turning on the faucet and just about getting anything we want and making it a reality. And, you know, that's, that's, um, that's a good thing. And uh, uh, for the most part. Um, So when you, you know, when you look at the choices that we have and what we have to, to choose from in terms of product and product development, and design, and things that are normal. We live, there's nothing like the time we're living right now. Um, <clears throat> I would say that, um, you know, I'm always looking for something that's going to, uh, that's going aug- to augment my, <clears throat> my writing experience because as someone that's 65, I'm, I'm, I've got to be careful. I've got, you know, I need all the tricks and I need every trick that a 20 year old needs and more. And that's, that's, um, that's part of my product development mindset is, is that I'm solving something um, because I want to keep riding the rest of my life as long as I live and how How do I, how do I keep my, uh, uh, how do I keep my, my bike going? How do I keep our tandem going? How do I make our bike safe? How do I, you know, it's, it's a little, a little bit higher focus on safety because of my age and what I know are the, uh, the, the limitations of my reflexes and my actions and all these kind of things. I, I do, <clears throat> I do think about things more as a pilot would think and kind of, you know, doing a flight check and things like that. And that's, that's, that's really important. Um, I'm figuring stuff out all the time and I'm making decisions based on, on, um, on what I would say, or, you know, kind of age, age related. Um, my dad, who's, turning ninety three next week wow uh, s- still rides as much as he can. I think it's possible to keep riding um, he's using electric assist uh, ask, that's, what kind of
0: bike is yeah, he riding
1: uh, <clears throat> he rides a um, he rides an unusual bike I forget the name of it he has back problems so it's it's a semi recumbent okay. And, um, anyway, uh, if it weren't for his back issues, he would be riding a traditional bike. Um, so thankfully, you know, everything, I think he started to have back problems, um, before, uh, I think as a, as a younger person. So, yeah, managing pain and figuring out how to keep, keep riding a bike. And, and, uh, you know, I think, I think it's, uh, it's, it's, the bike is, is as important as it, as it is in any time in history. I think for people, you look at how people are getting through COVID and, and, uh, and being alone and being able to, still do things. It's, you know, it's becoming one of the most important things in the kind of recreational sense. That's why it's doing so well. I'd say, you know, the, the, the main thing for me has always been the pure, simple joys of writing, And it doesn't, it doesn't have to do with, with, making a more and more complicated or expensive bike. So, so the Ritchie company is, um, is just reaping a business, something for a business reason. Really? I I hope that people who are looking at my products see, uh, see the person that needs them uh, in the owner of the company and makes good decisions for himself and therefore other people uh, that they can benefit from. Tom,
0: thank you so much. Wow. What a great ending to this very inspirational story. Thank you so much for, for, for especially digging deep in your, in your archives um, and yeah. sharing all those moments.
1: Yeah, you're welcome, Dirk. It's good to, good to say... Um, that I know people like you in the bike industry that have been there almost as long as me and uh, that you're still doing something you love and, and uh, it's good. It's great to have been on your show.
0: Thank you so much. You know, and I'm I'm definitely taking away a lot of this inspiration uh, for my next rides. I have to say, (laughs) Uh, and and I'm going to be looking for my my own little adventures um, and uh, keep that spirit high. So uh, please say hello to to Marta and and uh, stay safe and and yeah, keep exploring.
1: All right. Take care. Good thank deal. You. All right. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye.